Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your favorite 19th grade student and Religionless Church host, Mason Meniga. In this episode, I talk with Laura Beth Buckleiter. Laura Beth is a trans Christian, speaker, author, seminarian, and one of my favorite people in the whole world. Also musically featured throughout this episode is David Dingus. David Dingus is an experimental electronic pop artist from Georgia. You can get connected with both Laura Beth and David Dingus and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church.
today we have one of my dear friends, Laura Beth Bookleiter. And Laura Beth is, I mean, there. well, it's probably better to introduce you in terms of what you don't do because there's been so many things that you have done and are currently doing. Uh, so it's a little difficult to think about the things that uh, you are doing or just it would take too yeah. long, too exhaustive makes, of a list. It makes me tired to hear the list. So. <laughs> but a few of those things of what you do in the world is you're an LGBTQ advocate, you're a transgender Christian, um, and you are a seminarian, a writer, and I mean, just on top of all the other things you might do. Uh, but I'm curious, Laura Beth, who is Laura Beth to Laura Beth? Um, I am a struggling human being. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's just about me making it through another 24 hours. And I do that by finding my whole self, body, soul, and spirit. I do that by um, serving others in the LGBTQ plus community. I do that by educating myself through seminary. I do that by serving the church as a student minister and as um, uh, a consultant to, to churches. And, you know, every every step is just another another way of keeping myself grounded and, mm -hmm. and whole. So, uh, yeah, the question... Sometimes that question varies from minute to minute and day to day, but uh, that's probably the best summary of, of who I am to me. You, I remember a couple months ago, you mentioned this little quick one-sentence description of who you are. I forget what it was. Do, do you remember what it, what it was? So when I identify myself, I tell people I am a transgender, intersex, Christian, lesbian woman. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah, and then I sit back and sip my coffee and let them process that. <laughs> so great. So, uh, well, I'm sure we'll dive into all of those terms of why you identify with those those terms. Uh, but to begin with, I think you just have one of the most fascinating spiritual journeys I've ever heard. Can you share that story uh, from you know what, the time you were really young to where you're at now? How, how did how did you get to this point? Sure. I, I grew up in a Christian military family. Uh, my dad was a career Navy officer, and my mom was at home with us most of the time. Um, she, they came to a more evangelical understanding of their Christian faith when I was about two years old. They both grew up in the Methodist church. Hmm. Um, and so I was raised in more of that evangelical mentality. Um, Grew up in a Methodist church for a while in uh, PCUSA. I'm sorry, a PCA uh, churches for part of that. Um, based chapels for a bunch of that uh, growing up time. I was involved in young life in high school. I started leading worship when I was 12 years old. And um, right out of high school, went to Moody Bible Institute and mm -hmm. studied Bible and communications. Um, spent, took a hiatus from school for a while and spent a good chunk of time in the Christian music business. And um, then started working in churches and nonprofit ministries um, up until 2014 when a whole combination of life events uh, led to me being at a, a point of being ready to take my own life. Mm -hmm. Um, most of that centered around my physical well-being. I had a lot of chronic pain that was undiagnosed. 
Um, I was in a marriage that was crumbling rapidly, uh, partially because of my physical condition, partially because um, I was at a crisis of faith. I'd been in therapy for about 10 years at that point with what was at the time recognized as gender dysphor or uh, gender identity disorder, um, what is now referred to as gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the conflict of that dysphoria with my faith um, was crippling, to say the least, uh, paralyzing even. Mm. And so um, reached a point where I was, I guess I ready to take my own life. I spent a few, actually about a week and a half in a hospital. And then some time in intensive outpatient therapy and came to a point where my therapist and I were just sitting one-on-one -on -one going over all of the all of the stuff in my world and I just looked at her and I said I don't think my faith is big enough to handle all this and she just looked back at me and very casually said I don't think it's your faith that's not big enough but your idea of God that's too small mm. and I realized that I had been taught since an early age that I had a God-shaped hole in my heart that only God could fill and and I still believe that I believe that we are created to be in a relationship with our divine creator um, but in order to fill that hole in my heart, I had built a God-shaped box in my head. Hmm. And so I began the process of taking that box apart, plank by plank, and just stripping it down to the bare minimum. And um, part of that was studying scripture and just re-looking at this whole concept of gender and gender identity and biological sex from a whole different lens. Um, and realizing that scripture is not as black and white on the topic as mm. I had always thought, been taught that it was. Um, I often say that I took the teaching that I got from Moody Bible Institute on how to study the Bible, and I actually studied the Bible and set aside the conclusions that I was taught to come to. And then in studying, came to conclusions that I believe are consistent with the, the heart intent of scripture. So on that journey, clearly, and will be the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. um, so I came out at that point as a trans woman. I didn't really even know where I stood on same-sex relationships and marriage at that point. Um, that would come later in the journey. Mm -hmm. I uh, was eventually diagnosed with an intersex condition, which basically means that... So coming out as a trans woman recognized that my gender identity, my self-perception was different than the identity that I had been assigned at birth. Um, the intersex diagnosis recognized that the identity I had been assigned at birth didn't cover all of my physical attributes. Mm. So for example, I was born with both testicles and ovaries. Mm. My endocrine system behaves more like a female endocrine system than a male endocrine in terms of how it synthesizes testosterone and processes hormones. Mm -hmm. um, so all of these things started coming to the surface, which explained a lot of the chronic pain that had been happening. Wow, mm, so, interesting. Um, so the more this came to light, and the more I was faced with the question of, I am either a, a mistake uh, of nature, a product of the evolution of humanity, or I am a unique um, representation 
of one who is created fully in the image of God. And everything about scripture uh, drew me to the latter. So I embraced myself mm. as that and haven't looked back. talked a little bit um actually quite a bit about uh your journey of um being assigned a particular gender at birth and then um and then transitioning um and, and experiencing uh the gender dysphoria and then transitioning um to a different gender um can you talk a little bit more um sensibly about that that journey of um of you know having the diagnosis and going through therapy of um, having gender dysphoria and maybe even some of the things that you experienced in life prior to that um, that led you to the point where you you were like I uh, th this is a transition that needs to be made like can you can you go a little bit um, into that sure. story absolutely yeah I, like I said I spent years in therapy um, we never called it this but it was essentially con what we now call conversion therapy where yeah. we were looking to from a spiritual perspective shift my identity of who i was and uh, that can happen for sexual orientation or gender identity any concept of self we have that anyone thinks is counter to their interpretation of scripture is often attempted to be treated um, through through therapy and through that, mm. that, that process so um basically spent about uh, 10 years trying to pray the gay away um mm. you know or the pray away the woman inside me if you want to put it that way but during the course of my um therapy and my uh, process in that i um Sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> During the course of that therapy and also the process of trying to diagnose the physical pain, I um, ended up on testosterone therapy. My testosterone levels were really low. Mm. And so we worked to bring the testosterone therapy, my testosterone levels up. And later looking at that, realized that the more testosterone we gave me, um, while it might have boosted my testosterone temporarily, it also boosted my estrogen levels because I was synthesizing testosterone mm. um i also worked with um when i eventually stepped out of the, the christian therapy world i started working with other uh, disciplines for example i spent some time working with a dream therapist because a lot of my feminine identity was rooted in dreams about myself since high school um, mm. i have anytime i appear in my own dreams i appear as, as a woman and actually, that's where the name Laura came from. It's oh, really? Like, I didn't know that. My dreams. Yeah. Um, so it was just, I always knew that was, that was part of the name. And I'll tell you the rest of the story of my name later, if you'd like. But um, I, so I worked with a dream therapist for a while. I worked with, uh, I was referred to a specialist who works with eating disorders. 
And just to kind of show how, um, for lack of a better word, ignorant of the treatment process people were, eating disorders are referred to as body dysmorphia, mm. uh, whereas um, being a diagnosis for being transgender is gender dysphoria. So people saw dysphoria and dysmorphia and thought, well, they must be similar. They're actually almost exactly opposite. Mm. Body dysmorphia looks in a mirror and where the rest of the world might see a slim, a, a thin, slender, maybe even healthy person, um, they see overweight, they see fat, they see ugly. Mm. Um, or fill in the blank, whatever it is they see. Gender dysphoria looks in a mirror and sees exactly what everyone else sees, but it's contrary to their their mental image of what they believe should mm. be. Um, the uh, so it was it was extremely counterproductive. I mean, he would have me standing in front of a mirror for. My goal was 10 minutes at a time. I don't think I ever made it more than two. But standing naked in front of a mirror saying, this is me, this is me. Mm -hmm. And um, the problem was I had no, call, I had no um, argument with that. Yes, this mm -hmm. is fair. However, something's not adding up. So that time in front of the mirror just reinforced the dysphoria and the dysfunction that um, was was present in my life and in the process of that. So working through all sorts of different um, therapists, I met for the, the first time I ever met with a therapist who was an LGBTQ woman. Um, she, after a couple meetings with me, she said, I, I, I think you have an ego problem. And I almost fired her right there on the spot because <laughs> I was like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I'm the most insecure, um, timid, person and I was back then and she's like no, no no you don't have an overinflated ego you have um, you don't have an ego like you have no concept of self and what you portray as a concept of self are just masks that you have created for us to see and whatever environment you have to be on be in whether it's the evangelical church a professional world um, where uh, the family wherever that is you put on the mask that you need to wear mm. and she was right and i had done such an efficient job of creating those masks since you know early high school that i had lost all concepts of who who i actually was and so i as as that process unfolded is also at the same moment that i i came to recognize the scott chase box in my head so I was pulling the masks off of myself, letting God out of this box and allowing God to be as sold and as beautiful and as creative and as powerful as, as God is without me having to confine or define God. Mm. Um, while at the same time, allowing myself the same privilege. And um, eventually that came to a head um, where I had to, it's, 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 it's a little like the, the phrase, once you woke, you ain't going back to sleep. Um, the, uh, once I saw myself in that capacity, I couldn't put the mask back on. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, I came out to my wife, um, I came out to my parents, um, and was willing to 
to manage it at different levels and just you know work to stay within the context of the marriage it it, it meant leaving the church context we were in mm-hmm. and, you know but was hoping that we could we could find space but um it did eventually in the marriage um like i said the marriage was rocky to begin with and whether or not it would have survived anyway is a questionable but um but yeah, I began that journey with my parents my family of origin and um, it, it happened fairly quick um as far as my public identity goes after that so 2000 may of 2014 is when i was in the hospital i came out that summer um I legally changed my name in uh, January of 2017. Mm. Um, so there was a, a couple of years gap there. Um, I um, had some, I, I had to have some t- testicular cysts and hernias removed in the fall of 2014. Um, so initial surgery, which some people consider a gender affirmation surgery in the orchiectomy, testicle, happened uh, that summer. Um, it, for me, it was prompted by a different medical need. Hmm. And so it was, I wasn't complaining at that point. Um, and I was re- glad to be relieved of the pain. And the orchiectomy led to the diagnosis of the hernias. We went in to repair two hernias and found seven. And so they cleaned those up, and in the process of that, found the remnants of undeveloped ovaries. Mm. And so the the snowball just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. Yeah. And the more it rolled, the more affirmation I had that this is truly me. And I connected um, with LGBTQ Christians. Mm. Uh, I from my family is settled in Dayton, Tennessee and uh, connected with Rachel Hal Evans, mm-hmm. who was also in Dayton, and was sitting with her at a yogurt shop over strawberry yogurt. I can still taste it every time I tell the story. But, and um, I was just sharing my journey. And, and what year would have this have been? This would have been 2015. Okay. And I said, uh, she... I said, there's just no resources for transgender Christian people. I mean, there's just nothing out there for us. And she's like, well, that's very true. I mean, there, at that point, there was very little out mm-hmm. there. She's like, but you do realize you're a lesbian, don't you? And this like completely blew my mind. I had not even thought about relationships or dating or anything. I was getting to know me. And I was like, wait a second. I'm a woman who is attracted to women that by definition is yes a lesbian and she and that changed my whole google search string you know so now i was looking for lesbian and christian or gay and christian and so not only did that change my perspective but she actually stopped and introduced me to matthew vines with the reformation project and to justice at the time the gay christian network and um you know by january of 2016 i went to my first gay christian network conference in houston texas and sat in a convention hall with 1500 other lgbtq christians and allies and heard the same worship songs and read the same scriptures and everything that i'd grown up with and and been singing in our own churches the last 
several years. And it was just a, a eye-opening experience that this, this community existed. So I began to reshape my spirituality um, in that context. And as I did that, embraced who I am even on an even deeper, more personal level. And so, again, the snowball just kept rolling. Mm-hmm. And so I found I, going back to seminary had always been a goal of mine. Uh, I started looking for places and found Christian Theological Seminary here in Indianapolis. And uh, they were as excited about having me here as I was about being here. So, yeah, that's how I, how I landed where I am. You've been talking a little bit about this, um, but I'm curious, how has Christianity informed your understanding of what it meant to be trans before you transitioned? And now, how has Christianity informed what it means for you to be trans now? That's a great question. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna rephrase the question a little bit. So how before Christian before transitioning and before letting God out of the box in my head, um, the church shaped my concept of LGBTQ people mm-hmm. um, and trans people in general. So um, I was very much buying into that um, male and female. God created them that binary existence and the understanding that um, concepts of marriage and concepts of relationships, concepts of sex were all based then on that binary and that anything departing from that was an affront to God's order and design. Mm. Um, And then I started to get to know my own body. And to understand my own psychological, mental, spiritual, physical makeup Mm. and realize that it wasn't as clean. It wasn't as cut and dry. Mm -hmm. It's almost like there was a theological dysphoria going on too. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I've never used that phrase, but let's start using it a lot. (laughs) Theological dysphoria is, I think, exactly what most of Western Christianity is suffering from. and so. As, as I went through that process, as I started to get to know myself, I had a choice. I could say, Christian, the church has it wrong, and therefore Christianity is wrong. Or I could recognize that the church, as I had experienced the church, is but one expression of Christianity in a litany of 2,000 years mm-hmm. since Christ. Even longer than that, if we want to look at stories like God created them, male and female. Yeah. You know, that poem goes back to another at least 1500 years prior to Christ. So, um, I started, I started embracing Christianity outside of the context of the church, hmm. um, and and recognizing that there are church spaces that share this vision, that share this this dream, and share this ideology, and so, um. Post transition, then Christianity became 
the affirmation of who I am because I could recognize it, recognize myself in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, created not as a mistake, but as a representation of God's vast creativity and God's vast power to, to bring me into being intentionally in this space. One of the things that I love about you is that you are a fellow Enneagram 4. Yeah. You're an Enneagram 4 through and through. How do you see your fourness relating to you also being transgender? Well, we love our uniqueness, <laughs> for one thing. Um, you know, I think there is a... When I first was studying the Enneagram, uh, my friend Tammy and I were reading through Richard Rohr's book, and she was ahead of me and reading the four, and he defines the four as the need to be special. Mm-hmm. And she's like, have you read the four? Have you read the four? Because I was convinced I was a seven at that point. Actually. Oh. Um, that's what all the tests would tell me I am. But um, she's like, have you read this? Like, no, I still haven't gotten there. I have other things that I'm doing. She's like, well, read faster. <laughs> so I read the four and I read this, the need to be special. And it starts going through these things. And I'm like, Tammy, that's not me. I don't need to be special. I just, I am special. And this isn't a need, it's a, it's a lived reality. And she's like, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so there is a specialness that I feel. Um, there is a uniqueness and an individualism that I feel in my transgender identity. Mm. Um, not only my transgender identity, but in my experience um, to, um, to have experienced life both from being socialized as a male and then re-socialized as a um, it's not completely unique to me. It is common among the trans community, but each of us have a different perspective and a different take on it. Mm-hmm. Add a layer of that of doing so within the context of my faith. And not only in the context of my faith, but staying in my faith. A lot of people who go through this who have grown up in the church end up walking away from it, understandably. Um, but so there, it, my willingness to be unique, my willingness to be an individual, I think has driven my desire to stay connected to my faith, to stay connected to my church, despite some common logic that might say, suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, the other quality of the four is that we are naturally envious people. Mm-hmm. This is our shadow. And I, I see that in how I relate to cis men and women a lot of times. So mm-hmm. I am envious a lot of times of the simplicity that mm-hmm. cis people can experience in relationships in um, the way they relate to the world around them. And so, um, you know, my, my ex-wife just got remarried after five years, and I'm very happy for her and the kids seem to be happy with that and um and i wasn't there was a a morning that i went through that weekend but it it wasn't a morning the relationship because that has long since gone Mm -hmm. it was a morning relationship in general and realizing the complexity of intimate relationship in my life Mm -hmm. on a physical emotional mental spiritual all of those planes so my fourness rears its ugly head. Mm. That 
you are a fellow seminarian with me. Uh, we both go to Christian Theological Seminary, as you mentioned before. Uh, and because of that, you are ex- you're encountering all sorts of theologies. What theologies in particular have spoken to you in the last couple of years? Um, I think some of the some of the theologies that I had not been exposed to, uh, so dispensationalism, systematic theology, reformed theology, those are all very Calvinism. Those are all very familiar places mm-hmm. uh, in my world. Um, some of some of the the newer theologies, and I say newer, newer to me, uh, process theology mm-hmm. um, is something I'm still kind of getting my head around. Mm-hmm. Um, to the chagrin of our friend Kyle. Yes, God bless him. Bless his <laughs> We love you, Kyle. Um, the he, um, uh, the liberation theologies, mm-hmm. uh, uh, James Cone and his his Black Power theology, um, uh, queer theology as part of the liberation movement, womanist theology. Mm-hmm. Um, these are all all new spaces. Not all of them that I can strongly identify with but have certainly been able to inform my reshaping, my understanding of God and our relationship to God and how we comprehend and live out that relationship. I feel like I'm still missing my black ninja kawasakai. I'll pay the price so I can be a motorcycle We have David Dingus. Is that how you say it? I want to make sure that, I mean, it's a it's an interesting last name. I'm sure middle yes. school wasn't kind to you. Um, or, or being a teacher in an elementary school. Or being a teacher in elementary school, probably even worse. Uh, but David, you write like really fascinating music. I, I love the experimental nature of it. Um, and it's music that I typically don't listen to. But uh, I, I'm a I'm a total fan for anything that's experimental, and so uh, you immediately caught my eye when I was listening to some of your stuff. Uh, and you release you released a, a full length album just this last year. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about maybe some of the themes that you were trying to capture, uh, maybe lyrically or, and or sonically in that in that full length album? Sure. Um- so it was January 1st of this year. So I worked on it all last year and then, and then dropped it at the top of the new year. And um, I usually write an album once a year and I currently only have two of them, uh, maybe three of them if you, if you dug hard enough, uh, like currently publicly on the internet. But I write one mm-hmm. every year and sometimes I put one, uh, I share it, sometimes I don't just kind of based on how, if I'm proud of the product or if I feel like the product is something that can be enjoyed by other people. Hmm. Um, Because um, being someone who like works in, you know, like having a main profession and not having to rely on um, the music that I make to to bring in an income, I find that that's a little more freeing and that that gives me kind of the rights to, to enjoy musical exploration rather than like creating a product. Um, and so this one that I put out in, on January 1st, pretty much, um, last year I was listening to, um, like kind of earlier in the year, spring or summer, I was listening to an album called Drunk by Thundercat. 
Ooh, and uh, yeah. it was a it was an album that um, it, it came at a time in my life where the previous album that I had written was about exploring how to write um, love songs when you're married and mm. are already married and you're not you're not ever going to write another breakup song again. You're not ever going to write a this is a this is a new love kind of song. Um, and so I was kind of like exploring how to write a love song without it being like a like a, in a honeymoon phase. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was kind of interesting. And then with Thundercat, he he finally uh, kind of opened something inside of me where it was like, you know, you can you don't have to write about love songs or breakup songs or or this is the best night ever. You can write about, you know, like trying to uh, trying to find. Uh, a woman in Japan to make kids with you, to put it in, for lack of better terms, mm-hmm. or um, losing your wallet in the club, or um, talking about, you know, like telling other people to get off their social media so much. So this album that he has, like, has all the, all these kind of themes, and it was a it was really jamming album, and it showed off a lot of technical skill. And I don't necessarily know if if the average listener would be into it, but for me, it was like, okay, so this guy has a lot of musical prowess. And he's got a lot of opinion and he doesn't seem to need to filter it through anything. And so I just decided, well, I'm going to, I'm going to attempt to do that myself. So really the album is about kind of exploring, uh, wanting to be famous and not famous and wanting to make things for myself and for others and wanting to be recognized and wanting to be, um, you know, a, a hidden gem all at the same time. Hmm. Um, and just, uh, trying to make sense of how social media kind of impacts the the individual perspectives. That is so interesting. Uh, how about like sonically about that? Like, I mean, there's just a lot of different themes that are being explored. Do you think sonically you were able to capture a similar theme where maybe you were trying to get lots of different sounds captured? Uh, because you were trying to capture different themes, I, I don't know. But but was there anything uh, sonically that you were trying to uh, find some cohesion with what you were writing lyrically? Um, uh, definitely the second song, Two D Fighter. When I when I came up with the the idea, I was like, well, I need, I want to introduce this in eight bit, and so I had to go online and figure out how, like, what was a good program to to do an eight bit composition, um, and like. I have little sound bites thrown in and there, but that's mm-hmm. just because that's kind of a fun song. Um, and that was just kind of like the no rules. But the, for, the, for the majority of the album, I, I, I just bought my, my uh, second woman in my life, a Nord um, Stage 3, which I'll probably mm-hmm. never buy another keyboard again, hopefully, because it, I'm going to be paying for it until I'm like 35 or something. <laughs> um, but... <clears throat> I was I was starting to learn that and I really liked um, the e piano sounds on that so I pretty much stuck to those and then not not I could probably record my own drums but I don't have a drum kit and I live in an apartment like this is this is what I got so mm-hmm. I I needed to use um, electronic drums um, I know just I know how to like record a one string at a time on a guitar if I need to so that's why you hear like a tiny bit of that um, and then so I really just built it from beat, e piano, voice, and then I tried to try to bring in additional elements just to kind of give it a groove. Hmm. 
one of the things that I found really notable throughout the album is all like the excerpts and samples that you have of like just people talking or uh, yeah, just any lots of different kind of samples. Was there an intentionality behind, or maybe maybe there was an impetus behind why that was chosen to have like all these excerpts and samples of just talking and um, other sorts of. I don't know, randomness of, of people doing people things. Yeah. Um, I think that stems from in, uh, so I got to be, I was fortunate enough to be like one of the, the first generations that could, you know, listen to mom said, listen to Alanis Morissette and dad said, listen to Van Halen. And well, you know, let's, let's kind of strike our own path sonically and just go on the internet and see what kind of things inspire me. Mm. And um, the very first things that I picked up were um, a lot of like 90s rap albums. Like I, I really appreciate the album, like the, the art form of an album, because I, I like when you can get 30 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes of like cohesive storyline. And mm -hmm. just so that you can get perspective of where the artist was in the time of their life, um, even if the songs have different themes from here to there you could you can kind of look at the album in its entirety and kind of understand how they had all those different microcosms of, of stories within like the same season of their life um and specifically with like these old school hip-hop albums and something that Kendrick Lamar still does every time he puts out an album is sort of like a narrative and lots of like talking to mm -hmm. um the listener and I just listen to that just as much as I listen to anything else. And so an album to me means those things as well. It's not just like song, 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 song. Right. Uh, you, you mentioned at, at the top that you prefer to do like an album every year. Uh, so you released this last album on January 1st of this year. Uh, are, are, do you have any other projects in the future that you're working on? Uh, maybe there's another album that you're going to release next year on January 1st. Uh, but do you have any anything else in the works uh, that you're planning? Uh, right now, I'm not I'm not pushing myself, but I've been really stewing over what the next sound is because I don't I don't typically like stick to a particular sound um, from album to album just because I don't really feel like I ever found myself sonically. I think I think that finding yourself sonically is what happens when you're in a band and you're limited by. The, the technique and the and the instrumentation mm. of the people around you but when you're just using like if you're just with a keyboard and and you have samples at your dispense there's not really a reason why you should pigeonhole your your kind of creativity with that but um i dropped it on the first because i wanted to give myself a lot of time for for next year um the only thing i know right now is that i'm going to be using latin percussion um, I'm going to be trying to use a lot of um, like Latin jazz piano um, and um, blues elements. And then I want it to be even more fun. Um, I want to be more to maybe I, I, I feel like saying I want it to be like James Brown is pretty generic, but I, <laughs> I want it to be I want it to be fun. And I don't want the I don't want introspective lyrics at all i just want it to be like kind of good time music mm -hmm. um and i know that that's what it's going to sound like and i know that it's going to be called young old guy and that's that's all i know <laughs> I so it. sometime next year hopefully by the end of next year awesome 
Well, thank you again, David. Uh, I, I really appreciate the experimentation to your music uh, as, as somebody who just really loves the uniqueness of of samples and different sounds being utilized in music. Um, I, I love the fact that you don't um, just have this uh, blueprint that you have to set yourself to every time that you make music. I like the fact that you're switching it up every time. Uh, so thank you again for, for sharing your music. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mason. You had a really big moment just over a year ago now in May of uh, 2018. I did. Um, I did. We, we celebrated it together. When we we, we like did, that. and it was yeah. delightful. Um, yeah. I, I'll let you share that story um, because I, we okay. haven't really dug too much into that in this conversation. Um, yeah. So I'll let you share that story. But I have a kind of backing question to that story okay. of um, what have you learned about yourself theologically from – that event um because right like even though you were probably very affirming of yourself prior to that event uh as you would mm -hmm. have needed to uh to even have this happen um but i'm sure even post that event there was something about yourself that you learned um in terms of your faith or spirituality or even theology um so anyway share that uh share what happened and then okay. you can answer that question First of all, kudos for the rhetorical dance around actually naming the event while introducing all of that. that you I don't want to give it away. I want you to be able to be the first one. To... <laughs> um, so as I mentioned, back in 2014, I had the orchiectomy, which is um, a surgery to remove testicles um, and um, is often considered a first step toward um, medical gender affirmation. Mm. Um, for, and then followed by the hernia repair and followed by a couple of years of living relatively pain-free. Um, my abdominal pain had been so intense that after that surgery, um, I literally went to my therapist at one point. I was like, I have this odd pain in my stomach that I don't recognize. It's like this emptiness and everything. And she looked at me, she was like, when was the last time you ate something? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, you're hungry. This is hunger, but my abdominal pain had been so intense over the years that I didn't recognize hunger as a trigger to my body. So several years of living pain-free, and then um, in October of uh, 2017, um, the very sharp abdominal pain returned, and we determined that it was a pinched nerve, um, probably related to the intersex condition mm. and my um, primary care physician at the time said why don't we talk to um, the surgeon in Indianapolis who does gender affirmation surgery and see if this will help because we were kind of out of options mm -hmm. at this point and so I had a consult with them and then she's like well I, I don't know for sure that it can help we can do some things there but honestly can it hurt where you are right now and so 
it was an on, it was it was not a rhetorical question. We talked to other specialists and asked very legitimately, can this hurt? And at the end of the day, all of them and my insurance company agreed that this surgery was one of the best routes for me to take. So I, um, May of 2018, um, here in Indianapolis with Dr. Gallagher had the vaginoplasty and basically the process of um, removing the penis and opening up the vaginal canal, creating a vaginal canal and opening it depending on biology. But, mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, so that, that is what we call bottom surgery. Um, mm -hmm. The gender affirmation surgery process. Top surgery would be either for a male to female trans person, that would be breast augmentation. For a female to male, that would be um, removal of breast tissue mm -hmm. and everything. Um, so it was a surgery that I didn't feel like I needed for me to be a whole person. Mm. Um, you know, I, I went into it believing this was a, a medical necessity, which the insurance company had determined it to be, that it was going to help relieve pain or at the very least help future treatment of pain by providing better access to nerve endings and everything. So, uh, however, the first time I walked past a mirror about a week and a half after the surgery, after all the bandages and packing and everything had been removed and I saw myself, there was a sense of wholeness that I had never experienced in my life. Hmm. Um, there was a recognition of self. And I describe it now as my soul finally looking at my body saying, there we are. Hmm. And I've come to really embrace this idea that uh, we exist as a, a as much as we see God as a triune God, we, we exist in a triune state of body, soul, and spirit. Mm. And that wholeness is achieved when the body loves the soul, loves the spirit, loves the body. And for most of my life, that circle had been broken. Mm. That, um, that place of, of my soul and my spirit accepting my body as part of a whole self was greatly diminished because because the dysphoria because there was this disconnect between this clearly male body and this feminine understanding that I have mm -hmm. so um, so the surgery was a surprise <laughs> me in that capacity the outcome of the surgery mm -hmm. um, was a surprise and uh, it was about 80 percent successful in minimizing um, the pain that i was feeling so i had um i still experienced some abdominal pain but we kind of know and understand what it is and you just need a taco is what yeah, you need. do what you just need a taco is all you need, need a taco. that's all i need yeah <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, so it's been it's it's opened my eyes and the eyes of people around me to to really what that surgery is all about, and mm -hmm. it's, it is not a vanity issue. It's not a fetish. It's not a lot of things that it's often characterized as, but it mm -hmm. is truly a, a life giving and life saving. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. 
Last question, Laura Beth. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? Um, I am on uh, Facebook, my Facebook page at Laura Beth and Eva Clider. Um, and um, I, I keep that up to date fairly well. Um, my book is on Amazon, Shattering Masks, and published under the name Laura Beth Laura Bethany Taylor. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, those two places are the best. Follow me on Twitter at LB Bucklider. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Laura Beth. You are one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, I, it's a, been a treat to have known you for almost a year now, and yeah. you've become a very dear friend of mine. Um, and every time I talk with you and I'm in conversation with you, I am just always in awe of your wisdom and your story and uh, in just your soul in general. You're uh, such a beautiful and wonderful human being, and uh, I'm really glad to be able to call you a friend and also a now religionless church guest. <laughs> I appreciate that a lot, and the feeling is very, very mutual. So I look forward to continuing to work through this process together. 10,000 people think they have a vocation Telling other people what to be mad about One day we'll all laugh in unison If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Laura Beth and David Dingus, you can find links to connect to them in their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. How long can I